Hello everyone and welcome to this next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we always start by asking what are you thinking and this week We're joined by Carl, who's a specialist in veterinary anaesthesia, and we're going to be chatting about all things tramadol related. So as always, my name is Scott. I'm one of the founders of the Veterinary Thought Exchange, and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And we're joined, as always, by my best buddy and podcast producer, Karen, who is going to be keeping us on track. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, Carl, thanks so much. We're very, really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I just wondered if we could start by learning a little bit about you um, and maybe going back right to the beginning. So where you went to vet school and how all that happened. Hi, Scott, and uh, hi to all of your uh, VTX followers. Thanks very much for inviting me on to, to have a chat. Um, so, yeah, actually kind of going back to kind of many years ago now, it feels like, but uh, I... <laughs> went to Liverpool Vet School, which uh, was kind of 1997 that I started there. So right. yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, a couple of decades ago now, and I graduated <laughs> in um, 2002. At that point of graduation, I always think this is really interesting. Did you know at that stage, or did you have any idea really what you wanted to, how you wanted your career to look like? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Actually, at that point, and probably still now, actually, Liverpool had a really big um, kind of focused anaesthesia team and quite, a, quite strong links to the medical school, to the anaesthesia department as well. Okay. And at the time when I first started, the anaesthesia professor was also, well, he was professor of anaesthesia for the whole of the, um, the university. So he covered both the medical and the veterinary school. He was a vet. He wasn't a medical anaesthetist, but yeah. there was a real focus there, and particularly with the equine hospital at that point. So equine anaesthesia was a really big part of probably our um, kind of undergraduate education. And the small animal hospital at Liverpool was going through that turbulent time, I think, that a lot of vet schools have. And I can remember at one point there was there were probably more students in the hospital than certainly members of staff. So the equine kind of focus and then the equine anaesthesia, that that kind of ignited my interest and my my passion in anaesthesia. I'm not sure I necessarily graduated knowing that I would definitely go into doing anaesthesia as a specialty, but I definitely had that focus, that idea that I would specialise in an area. And I think actually at the time, it was going to be either anaesthesia or ophthalmology. Those were my two kind of areas that, uh, that I was interested in. I think it's really interesting. So I um I do not have those shared experiences of interest, but in a good you know, we've all got we all got our own strengths. I must admit that I have um a little bit of kind of PTSD related to equine anesthesia because I just think um and still now, like I just think it, you know, to make a horse <laughs> go to sleep is just one of the most frightening things in the whole universe. And you know, just I don't know, is is there not something I just find that really very very scary thing to have to be in charge of too right a minute the first time you see a horse get you know have some drug administered and it essentially kind of tombstones on top of uh, you know the, the kind of floor then it's you know it's it's, it's quite an experience it's very different than anything else i think we do in any of our clinical work yeah no i agree yeah actually what's really exciting about and 
and I always say this just to when I was kind of teaching that they're like horses most of the time when they're presenting with colic it's like a big GDV so there's the excitement <laughs> about a GDV I think in clinical practice mm. the excitement in equine anesthesia is really those those cases of colic I mean orthopedics like small animal orthopedics it's very kind of mundane you do the same thing mm. but the colic and the kind of whole of that peri operative perianesthetic management is the stuff that's actually really exciting in those cases I, I i do think with time you or certainly i did you you get a little bit older you become a little bit more wary of horses and if you're not dealing with them on a regular basis that's definitely um a concern so they're fine when they're anesthetized now they're fine when yeah. they're conscious yeah, yeah. and you're not very good at handling them they they pick up on that really easily and they they try it on but i think that goes i think it's probably the same for cats horses you know difficult uh, dogs like i think once they're asleep i mean it just <laughs> it's plain sailing right definitely. um so what did what did you so what was your first job out of vet school i don't know why i decided to do this but for some reason i wasn't quite sure jobs at that point i seem to remember thinking i was kind of lagging behind some of my colleagues in terms of getting a position so i took a job in a small animal practice where I was promised some equine work um, and that was in the in the West Midlands but it it wasn't it, it was a, it was an experience uh, kind of an eye-opening experience to practice and I stayed there for I'm trying to think now probably around four months which um, in that point I just needed to decide actually it wasn't the right thing for me to be <laughs> doing I was very much kind of thrown in a, in the deep water, in, you know, the deep end, I should say, which um, was good in some ways, but also kind of, I think I, I realised I needed a bit more support um, at, that, at that time. So that job was, uh, yeah, it was an experience. And so when did you start to, how, when did you start to kind of develop your, uh, or begin your career to becoming a specialist then? So I moved on from that job to then a mixed, so a very mixed practice, probably in the days of kind of very traditional uh, mix of about 50, 60% large animal work and um, the rest in kind of small animal. And that was in the Staffordshire Moorlands, so very kind of kind of rural area and a lot of kind of interesting farm characters. But the farm animal work particularly kind of ignited further interest in anaesthesia. I think it was a really good introduction you you know we probably do kind of procedures and things with farm animals that we don't do with any other species a lot of standing surgery they require kind of local anesthetic techniques those kind of aspects of practice and that kind of pushed me on further and I stayed in that practice for about five years uh, in total okay and during that time um, that really kind of furthered my my interest in anesthesia and then that was my kind of focus for moving on to uh, to do a residency so that probably this is another little bit of an interesting story, which which not everyone will. So I started at the at the Royal Vet College actually with my residency program, and the official title was Equine Anesthesia and Intensive Care. So I kind of started down the focus of doing most of it in the equine hospital. It was a European college program, so you st I still had to do large, um, small animal um, anesthesia as well. Mm -hmm. But most of my work at that point was in the equine hospital, and it it was a it was an interesting time. It was a difficult time for me, I think, in terms of the program, the way that things were run, and the way the two hospitals worked together. They weren't as integrated in any way as they are now, 
and probably about halfway through the residency I decided actually that I, I wasn't very happy um, with the with the program and I decided at that point that I would kind of just take a step back for a little bit and just decide what I should do and very kind of both fortunately lucky I suppose would probably be the way to describe it at that point then I was approached by Davies Vet Specialists to move there. They wanted someone to do a maternity cover, but they also wanted to do some more training and they took over my residency program. So I finished it at Davies. Ah, right. So with and and obviously they don't have a large animal component. There's a certain kind of number of cases, the minimum number of cases to put into the case log, and I'd already fulfilled that with the um with the large animal work that I'd completed over those kind of 18 months. So that wasn't an issue for, for me, luckily, and the small animal caseloads being in private practice was obviously much, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a big caseload, some really good, interesting cases, and that allowed me then to finish the, finish the programme there. So when did you pass your boards? I passed my board 2013. Okay. Second time around. Well, listen, all the, all the best people do it second time around. <laughs> I think I, I always joke about my frequent flyer card that really happened to Geeson because, yeah, we our exams in two parts and um I I made a few trips and um and I literally did get Lufthansa sent me a frequent flyer card because <laughs> I've been there so many times. So anyway, um, so then how has your career looked, uh, after you know passing your your boards you've been in mostly private practice is that right yeah. but we you've obviously we met actually when I was doing my residency you did a locum stint at the University of Edinburgh so you've you've done a bit of kind of locuming stuff as well right yes yeah I was around the time I passed my boards I was at Liverpool so I was a lecturer at Liverpool at that point okay in my career and then after doing that for a few years I decided I'd kind of move out of academia and I moved into doing mostly kind of consultancy work and some locum work at that point. I was based okay. in an ophthalmology clinic actually and just out near to the vet school in Liverpool and I did locum since so that's yeah originally how we we met when I went up to Edinburgh for yeah. I think for like nine months or so I was up in Edinburgh. Yeah, that's right. And then I was still doing kind of locum stints or holiday cover for Davies and traveling around to some of the other the other clinics, private clinics. And I, I did visit a couple of the other vet schools. So I kind of saw most practices, I think, in the UK over probably about six years that I did that for. And you're now at Anderson Moors? Yes, yeah, we moved down here, um, well, kind of a year and a half ago and you get to work with your husband every day <laughs> <laughs> i do yes yeah that was that was uh, i mean we kind of made the decision really that with my work i was away three sometimes four nights a week and we did that for obviously those number of years and then we realized after a while actually this was just becoming crazy not only traveling but you know, there's, there's only so many nights that a hotel's lovely for, and then you just go, actually, this is yeah. this is enough. So, yeah. and at that point, Matt had been in his previous job for about ten years, and he decided it was time for a new challenge for him. So, for those of you listening that don't know, so you're both specialist veterinary anaesthetists. Um, so you're both you're doing this a similar, I presume, a similar job. So, does that work out okay? You can be really honest; no one's listening. <laughs> Well, I think we're very lucky, probably like yourselves, where 
although we work together, we generally are dealing with separate things yeah. at um, kind of the same time. So we're not necessarily, we're not kind of stood over each other doing, um, you know, kind of working together in that kind of sense. So I suppose in that respect, the clinical work works fine. He is my, he's the head of Rabbicides. He is kind of my, my line manager, my boss, effectively. I, did, I didn't want to bring that up. I had noticed that on, <laughs> I'd looked on the website. I wasn't sure the hierarchy of it at all. But that's okay, is it? <laughs> Absolutely fine. He, he deals with that stuff that I don't have to deal with. So I guess for me, that, um, that's fine. And I'm yeah. kind of, my role's developed a little bit. And although we still do mostly clinical anesthesia, then I lead or part lead the intern program. Um, so I've got other areas now that uh, take my time oh, up. Cool. So that's, I think it's good to have those differences. We don't do the same, the same role. And then I suppose uh, there's a bit of a similarity in, in I suppose, what we're doing um, as far as diversifying or sort of branching out into other aspects of um, work outside our clinical job. So just tell us a little bit about what you've done with that. Yeah, so about, where are we getting at now? So 2016, we um, visited a friend of ours in New Zealand, or we were invited out originally to run a kind of local anaesthetics, kind of pain management course out in, in New Zealand. And that was by one of our friends who is, and he's a specialist surgeon. He did his residency with Matt in Liverpool and is a, is a Kiwi, a native Kiwi, and he'd moved back, back home. And we'd had this idea for a little while that we would kind of come up with this course and go out there to teach it. Obviously, a holiday as well. It was the kind of a, one of these kind of bonus, go out, do some teaching, have a, a trip there. And when we first arrived, we had kind of discussions about uh, how things were going to run, what we were going to do. And we came up with this idea then of this zero pain philosophy. So this kind of concept as to giving people the tools to be able to make sure that they can manage pain, they can manage analgesia in the best way um, possible for, for all of our uh, all of our patients so it kind of it, it came out of probably sitting around having a coffee in an amazing um, cafe in Auckland I think very similar to to you guys who've kind of moved um, from just doing this kind of like day you know kind of attendance courses to more of an online presence and that's been something we've been thinking about for some time and it kind of took the the recent kind of changes to everyone's lives to focus us a bit more to go actually we have got some time now outside of our our jobs to um to develop that further so tell me what zero pain and we'll obviously put the the links to all of this in the in the the podcast description but tell me what zero pain looks like now as an online platform so what does that provide people with so we we started yeah pretty much in kind of may time with um, introducing webinars so that's been our kind of focus over the last sort of two two months or so and putting together really just kind of topics that are one current and two useful we, we, this is very much aimed at the practitioner so the vet practitioner and the nurse as well so we're really trying to encourage people in terms of using analgesia in, in clinical practice we're not this is not aimed at, you know, in any way at academia or, or people that are specialists. This is really kind of useful information. How can you actually use these drugs on a 
day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So that's been the main focus. We did set up, and we have set up, uh, a consultation service as well, really aimed around analgesia, so acute pain management and also chronic um, pain management as well. So those are the two kind of areas we've focused into at the moment. The other thing that the website offers are some updates. We started off with kind of like a blog, I suppose, like a lot of people do, where we were putting kind of more bite-sized information about new Mm -hmm. topics, new ideas, current concepts. And we've moved to calling that a pain update now. So we put into that anything from, you know, how you might use ketamine, whether like meropotent is analgesic, things from acupuncture, you know, new uses for old drugs. So, and that information is, is there and available for anyone to, to pick up. As far as um, our clinical topic this week, I had suggested that we had a chat about tramadol. When I worked in general practice, it was a drug that was used a lot. In the practice I work in now, there is definitely, it's still used, but there's definitely varying opinion of how useful it is. I went through my residency with one mentor who literally thought it was the, um, the most rubbish drug in the world. And there's a lot of kind of conflicting opinions regarding its use and I thought it'd be nice to kind of just drill down onto what we actually know about the drug and whether there is any use for it. So I don't know if you can maybe just start by talking about um, how tramadol should be used in practice and where you if you if you think there is a place for it in general or you know specialist practice. Sure it's um... I think you're right. I, I remember starting my residency and it, I think it was kind of, it had just appeared into the UK market at that point so in the kind of like the, the mid 2000s. And it was seen as that little kind of smarty that everyone dispensed because it wasn't regulated like any of the other opioids type medications that we have. And it could be dispensed for home, for home use, particularly, I suppose, in those patients that, that couldn't receive a non-steroidal in, on the basis of, very other you know kind of few other drugs um. as far as what kind of drug it is and how it works how much do we know about how it the mechanism of of its action it's a well kind of investigated and looked at drug because it's used very commonly in in human medicine so we know that it's a it's a synthetic it's a weak mu opioid agonist so it sits in the same class as things like morphine and methadone in terms of the mu receptor but it doesn't have a very good affinity for the receptor. So it's a very kind of a, a poor, mu, uh, weak opioid. And it sits, if you look at something like the chronic, like the World Health Organization chronic pain ladder for, you know, where you're going to introduce different analgesics and it's quite a low drug within that kind of um, pathway. So it's something you're going to be started on early on in your disease state, you know, disease process, and you're going to be stepped up to, you know, to more potent analgesics. So you know, getting towards morphine at the top, really. So a very kind of weak mu opioid. What's interesting about the drug is it also has some other kind of pathways, which which are really related to serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake. So both of those pathways that are more probably akin to kind of chronic pain, they're not necessarily pathways that we expect to be upregulated during acute pain. They're more you need that chronicity of kind of input into that area that actual chronic pain to then get up regulation within those pathways 
and potentially other things related to thing to other kind of receptor other um, ligand populations so you know areas where something as simple as like chili pepper can activate certain kind of pain um, pathways and actually downregulate sort of chronic pain so I think that's what's interesting about the drug and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that a lot of people give it out it's because of its kind of regulation and being easier to dispense then it was seen as one of these kind of panaceas of something that you could send patients home with and the the pathway and the and the way that it sort of um you know those different mechanisms don't really lend itself to acute pain management but come on to kind of some species differences i think it's important to think about what you're dealing with as well as the um, the kind of presentation of the patient so what i think you're, you're right it, it it kind of went from that drug that everyone gave out to suddenly we've now got a licensed tramadol product in the uk i think that's something else as well that's kind of changed that and it's licensed on data that no one really knows where the, that license came from but it was a product outside of the uk the company's taken it on it's licensed in the uk now in dogs, we know that dogs are not very good at metabolizing the kind of the you know the actual kind of pro it's a pro drug a pro opioid drug. Dogs don't have a very good ability to metabolize to that active metabolite the active drug that's required um, to produce the opioid effect. And I think a lot of people are using it on that basis for its opioids kind of analgesic effects. And it's very similar to people. You you'll talk to a population of people and again, you'll probably get around 50% of them that get a really good effect from using tramadol. And the other 50% will say, actually, it probably just made me feel a bit kind of weird. So you get the other kind of sedative effects that you don't necessarily want to have. I'm in the 50% that had a really great experience with tramadol. <laughs> I, um, and we shouldn't joke about that, but I mean, truly, I broke my rib um, and it literally best couple of weeks of my life and it really made me feel amazing and it worked extremely well so but I think that you're absolutely right there was such a there's such a variability it makes Andy feel terrible you know so I think you know there's such a variability and and I think that would be the one of the first things I would say to people to to think about when you're using it it's really important to talk to the owner and see what they think because actually if you give it to one patient Mm. and the client says it was rubbish but if you don't get that feedback and if you carry on prescribing, then it's really hard to know that you've had a positive effect. Whereas, you know, another client might say, look, it was absolutely amazing and they look so much better. So we, you will get that individual variability. I'm, I'm talking more here of sort of chronic pain management. The, the, the kind of the evidence for acute pain management is pretty much zero. And I think if you talk to most people now, we just don't okay. have the data to support, not in dogs very specifically here. We don't have the data in dogs to support its use for acute pain management. In most of the work that's out there, either it was no better than placebo, as in giving nothing or giving saline, or when you added it in combination right. with, say, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, there was no improvement, no increase in the kind of analgesic uh, kind of effect that you got. So in acute pain management in dogs, as you said specifically, we really don't have a huge amount of evidence to say that tramadol is very effective. No, exactly. And I think, I know you're going to talk to Matt at a later point about paracetamol. I'm not going to kind of like steal his, his thunder at that point, but I would, I would 
kind of uh, direct people to looking at alternatives to tramadol in in dogs wherever you know wherever possible you've said very specifically dogs there so i i sense that there is a difference then with cats yes yeah so we 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 appreciate in cats that they're probably all the, you know most of the time i think we always say cats generally are not very good at metabolizing drugs and they tend to you know deal with most of the kind of analgesics and other medications we give in a different way but they do seem to be able to produce more of this kind of we say it was often called the M1 metabolites, which is the one that we associate with providing the kind of opioids component. And because of that, cats do seem to have a better kind of effect. We get better analgesia associated with the use of, um, of tramadol in cats. Now there is some, a lot of, most of the data out there is kind of focused again on kind of chronic pain, but there are some studies looking at injectable tramadol um, we don't use that very commonly. And I don't think I've actually ever administered IV tramadol, but you can source it. And even in that situation, then it's been shown to have a beneficial effect in acute pain management in cats. But certainly um, with other kind of osteoarthritis studies, then it does seem to provide an analgesic effect from the mu component. So cats I would say slightly different one of the biggest problems I think most of us tend to find it, I don't know if you've ever tried to administer tramadol in the kind of like human form to you know formulation to a cat they usually just salivate everywhere look very unhappy there's actually there's always that there's also that tramadol liquid I don't know if you've ever yes. um some so I've seen that being used because it's easier easier in inverted commas to dosing cats but again they just think it's absolutely rancid like just not okay i would say we with one of um actually with my previous boss from davies who was my residency supervisor there we did a review in 2018 of acute like kind of updates in acute pain or um from the previous five years and there was there's definitely some data there that we could consider tramadol in cats the dose is quite important because it seems if you go too low, you don't get a clinical effect. If you go too high, you see a lot of adverse effects, diarrhea, sedation, um, kind of dysphoria. But if you go in the middle of the dose, so around two to three milligrams per kilo and twice a day in cats, then um, you are likely to get a positive effect. I think some of the kind of newer formulations where they've been reformulated into um, smaller tablet sizes, for example, some of those might be more suited to um, to delivery. But I, th- I suppose overall, really, correct me if I'm wrong, but ultimately when we're talking about acute pain, and particularly when you're starting to talk about injectable tramadol, at the end of the day, if we've got an animal in a hostel, we're dealing with an acute pain, then there's so many other drugs that are going to be superior from an injectable point of view, from whether that be methadone or morphine or fentanyl you know so it it seems like it's not really got a place in that in that hostilized environment yeah i completely agree i think we've 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 lots of other options and we've got lots of evidence for these other options in terms of their effect and with i think the other thing that's really important and something you know when thinking about anything kind of anesthesia analgesia related if you're familiar with giving a particular medication a particular drug you know what's going to happen, you know the dose that you're going to give her, you know what the effect's going to be, then you know, why go off-piste in those kind of situations and yeah. get something that you've no experience of and then 
you you only you know you're more likely to see a problem in that situation dealing with an animal that's not kind of you know maybe it's sick or it's not a healthy patient um, so go for those ones that we've got good evidence and you know we've got good safety data as well thinking about decision making so i'm i'm in practice i want to we've moved away from that kind of acute pain management and we're we're about to reach for something off the shelf to dispense to send home with a patient what is there is there any place then for tramadol in that kind of context i don't i'm trying to think of a scenario let's say um you know we're sending a patient home after a relatively routine soft tissue procedure let's say a, a cystotomy for instance and there's a reason in that patient to specifically avoid non-steroidals is there any role for tramadol in those sorts of scenarios it's in you, you, you pick something potentially i suppose where there might be more of a chronic kind of inflammatory component to it with something like a cystotomy and maybe maybe in that situation you could use it as an adjunct but it wouldn't be i don't it wouldn't be my first kind of take home choice. i suppose if that was a patient that came in with a very acute presentation, had a cystotomy and is going home, then you're probably unlikely to get a benefit from using something like tramadol in that um, in that case. And obviously, if you're not able to deliver a non-steroidal for, for whatever reason that might be, then something like paracetamol might be certainly, that might be my kind of like first kind of choice for, um, for that situation. If it was more chronic kind of bladder disease where you've already got that kind of upregulation of those different kind of pain pathways, then that's where tramadol in dogs, and this is you know kind of been shown in cats as well, where tramadol may have a benefit, not because of the opioid component, but because of the serotonin, noradrenaline, and the G1 kind of kind of pathways. Because those are ones where we've got a regulation associated with that kind of chronic input into the nervous system and tramadol may allow some of that to obviously be kind of damped down as such and I think what's really interesting in that kind of situation with only I mean the same would apply for you know maybe a dog with chronic osteoarthritis or another chronic kind of pain state where the emotional component of that pain it's obviously it's easy for you or i to know i mean you you kind of hit the nail on the head you said actually i took tramadol and i felt amazing and it's obviously much harder for us to know that with our patients how do they actually i mean you can see a lot of the time you give something to a, a cat particularly and you can tell that it probably just feels awful because it's got you know like massively dilated pupils it's salivating and it doesn't look kind of very happy and then you see there's other cats where they're rolling around, they're doing their little puddings and, you know, they're, they're really chilled out, super happy about it. But a lot of the time, how do you, how do we assess that kind of emotional component of those kind of chronic pain um, conditions that we see? And that might be where tramadol has a place to play. So if the client says, look, you know, Fido, he's a million times happier now. And okay, he's still lame, but we're not going to solve his lameness, for example. But actually, he's super happy, he's eating, he wants to do stuff, he wants to interact with us, and we've introduced tramadol, then that's probably a good kind of bit of evidence that tramadol has been effective. We're not necessarily saying it's providing analgesia per se, but actually, you know, he just he feels amazing now, and the, and the client's really happy. And I think 
that's a really important area of chronic pain management where tramadol might be useful but equally don't i think the the, the worry is that you, you know someone dispenses a month of tramadol they don't follow up in that time and actually the client stops giving it because it either they see an adverse effect or you know there's no benefit and then we don't add anything you know we don't change it for another drug at that point so it's just that communication and making sure that the client is you know is is positive about about whatever you've um, dispensed what do you think is the most common question that you'll be asked regarding tramadol most common question really i think people have moved away from acute pain use of tramadol there are people using it still and i and i see letters and i read case reports of people using it i think it's in the chronic pain cases about whether they should use it or not and i think it's people just worried about whether it's going to have a, a benefit but a lot of people are focused on them on the opioid side of the drug which is potentially not the most kind of useful side of it if you know if it's if it's a dog that doesn't metabolize effectively to the you know the active drug then the other side of the drug is probably more you know is something that's more useful so i know that you know a number of people kind of running pain clinics and doing behavioral work they really do think quite positively about using tramadol for its emotional kind of side for the serotonin it's really interesting and so what would you say then is the most common reason that you will use tramadol in your clinical work i think probably in the pain so in our pain clinic it's going to be one of those drugs that we that we will use if we've seen a patient you've either got kind of a reason to not give a non-steroidal they've had some sort of adverse effect they're on other treatment they've got other disease that means you can't deliver non-steroidals and we've already started them perhaps on some other medications maybe we're using acupuncture but the client still feels that they're not you know they've not reached that kind of quality of life point where we want them at then that's something i'm going to think about adding tramadol tramadol in but we're going to use it probably earlier on in the disease process so i think it's more of a stage of kind of trying to do multimodal therapy than just using single drugs if by the time a patient presents to us most of the time they've already got relatively advanced disease for the client to notice that you know they've already got multiple joint osteoarthritis often in those cases a non-steroidal is not enough by itself anyway you do need to have multi-therapy to um, to manage those cases and those are probably ones where a non-steroidal with tramadol you know with paracetamol at that point is going to be a useful kind of initial place to to start and get the client to come back in you know a month's time and and just see what uh, you know what's going on at that time point and i think probably just to some you know kind of summarize that if the patient if the client think the patient responds to it brilliant use it but if they don't then don't just keep you know continue prescribing it switch to something else and obviously if you if you've got a a cat in a similar situation then it's definitely something to consider if you're limited by um, by other options and i think that's still the kind of the most difficult situation is is the cat that can't have non-steroidals we're so much more limited there's so many more options in dogs when um when non-steroidals can't be given but in cats it's just not as easy to you know to switch and find other um, other drugs and as i said there is at least a little bit of evidence there whereas 
some of these newer molecules that we're using, these newer drugs, there's very little evidence yet, apart from clinical effects. Welcome to the next edition of our Desert Island Drugs segment. So this is the part of the show where we think about a clinical situation. We have a a number of drug options and we can only take one of those drug options to our Desert Island. We can only save one of them from the waves. So I'm managing a dog that has uh, chronic hepatopathy, has uh, had persistently high uh, or elevated liver enzymes, and we have a confirmed um, inflammatory hepatopathy. The dog uh, has, let's say, has hurt its leg, and we want to provide it with analgesia. The options for analgesia are as follows. So we have paracetamol, meloxicam, tramadol, or gabapentin. And I just wondered, can we think about which one of those drugs might be best suited for providing analgesia in a dog with liver disease? Sure, you you, you picked a tough one, and you picked four uh, <laughs> four drugs there that um, there's already I've already got one that I'm gonna I'm gonna take to uh, take to the island with me because I think the, the the others have, have each got their kind of their downsides, particularly in you know in in this situation. I think probably the first one to to go is going to have to be paracetamol unfortunately even though it's probably one of my favorite new uh, kind of new, old drugs that we use in kind of different ways but in terms of um particularly metabolism then it's is very heavily reliant on um, the liver for that and i i think that's got to be the first one to to disappear un- unfortunately and then the the meloxicam you know one of our non-steroidals again very kind of heavily reliant on the hepatic um, metabolic pathways and very likely then to um, to reach levels which may give us concern about other organ mm-hmm. functions and particularly thinking about gastrointestinal and, and renal function there so that's going to be the second one uh, unfortunately that's going to um, that's going to go the, the next two, I did think about this for a little minute there, actually, when you were just reading them out. And I was wondering what the last one was going to be that you were going to say before um, before I made my mind up. But I think I am going to throw, um, I'm going to throw Tramadol out at this point. I did think about whether we would include it. Um, but again, reliance on obviously liver in terms of going from that kind of pro-drug to the the active drug. And if this is an acute kind of, injury which it sounds more like then potentially we're not going to get the benefit it was more chronic disease maybe we could have considered it so tramadol is going to go i'm going to put gabapentin in and i'm going to a couple of things here that um we do see i think we see clinically very good effect from from gabapentin even in this kind of situation i'm basing this on my use of the drug and my experience i i'm not basing this on any data we don't have very good data yet for gabapentin in, a, in acute pain management there are some a couple of things in cats looking at like acute musculoskeletal injury where gabapentin did have a positive um a positive outcome in terms of improving analgesia but not there's nothing in dogs yet but it's probably the one where okay it still requires some liver metabolism and when someone says to me what would you pick with liver disease well everything requires the liver pretty much 
unfortunately. So it's what's the kind of the best out of the, um, you know, the ones that are presented with. So I've just been careful about dosing and about interval uh, as well. So maybe usually we would go for gabapentin sort of three times a day in the dog, but I might just switch down to two times a day and I'd be going to the low end of the, uh, the dosing range and, and monitoring effects. But that would be, that would be my, my choice out of your, um, your four options. Thank you so much to Carl for joining us today on the podcast. We really enjoyed chatting. To find out more about what Carl and Matt are doing with their Zero Pain philosophy, uh, head over to their website, which is www.zeropainphilosophy.com. They've got loads of really useful information on there. Next week, we're really excited to be joined by Laura, or as many of you will know her, um, on Instagram as Vet Internal Medicine Nursing when we're going to be talking about her views and approach to the management of her chronic medicine patients. As always, we want to say a massive thank you for listening. To find out more about VTX, please head over to our website, www.vtx-cpd.com. And as always, head over to our social media platforms and remember to like, follow and share. See you all next week. Bye.